Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, and season three, sponsored by British chocolate company Montezuma's. This week I'm with a food writer who has sold more food books than anyone else in the UK after the pinch of noms, Jamie Oliver, Mary Berry and Joe Wicks. Rook Miniaya's Roasting Tin series does just what it says. It roasts in one tin the kind of inspiring and easy flavours that look and taste so good that the country can't get enough. You've got these little bits of fresh coconut that my mum will fry and you put those in um, and loads of lime juice and a bit of turmeric and salt. Super simple, maybe five or six ingredients. And it's something the way the lime juice works with the coconut and lifts the flavour. But before we find out how it feels to be in the top five food books, let's find out a little bit more about this month's sponsor. British chocolate company Montezuma's has always strived to find ways to do their bit and take a proactive role in keeping our planet beautiful. Helen and Simon Patterson founded Montezuma's 20 years ago and have followed their mission of business done properly ever since. As well as using the finest ethically sourced ingredients, they've also committed to a waste-not-want-not approach to eliminate waste and reuse or repurpose wherever possible. In 2019, Montezuma's made a commitment to ensure that 100% of its packaging was now either recyclable, biodegradable or compostable. It also ensures the use of recyclable inks, eliminating non-recyclable plastics and minimising their production waste by repurposing old chocolate bar wrappers. They're currently working on how to minimise any chocolate waste by using wonky truffles for tasters in their stores or for sale. So far, Montezuma's has repurposed 7.5 tonnes of packaging and makes sure as little as possible goes in the bin. The company hopes its story will drive positive change in the fight against waste. And we think that's a very good thing indeed. Back to the roasting tin. And I just had to ask Rick Mini what it takes to sell half a million food books. And if her secret is writing really exciting but very simple recipes. Uh, yes, I think that's a great way to put it in a nutshell. I Obviously, the, the idea behind all the books is put it in a tin, let the oven do the work. But then on top of that, I've put quite a lot of thought into maximizing the flavor in each tin without it looking too intimidating or using ingredients that perhaps you have to go to a specialist shop from. So I I like to think that most of my books, you could get everything you want in Tesco on your way home. So that's one level of accessibility. Next level is just chop and chuck and then sit back and relax. So there's a sort of many elements which make it a very easy way to cook, but then you're also getting so much back, um, you know, don't put in very much effort, maximum return. Yeah. I mean, chop and chuck is interesting. It's the language of the time poor. It's this idea, certainly before lockdown, that we didn't have time to do nice things for ourselves, that nobody had time to cook. Nobody had time to shop beautifully or to spend time on their family. I didn't quite agree with that narrative. But hey, lockdown showed us that actually give us a bit of time, keep us at home. What do we love to do? We love to cook. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's interesting talking to you about the phenomenal success of a book that spoke to the time poor after lockdown. How do you kind of see the world now? Is it still a chop and chuck generation? I think it really depends on your lifestyle. And often there are times when I or other people, whether you're a keen cook or a beginner, you want to spend all afternoon sort of pottering. You know, you've got time cooking's an enjoyable, relaxing, sort of therapeutic activity. But a lot of the time when it's a a toss-up between, well, 
I could order a takeaway or grab a ready meal or, okay, five minutes chopping. I can manage that. And I like to think that these books in particular allow you to eat something really delicious and nutritious and it's appealing to people who are time poor without sacrificing anything in terms of flavour. So in a way, I like to think you could spend six hours making your dinner and it will be lovely and your family will eat it in five minutes and go, that's lovely. Got any more? Got any pudding? Whereas at least with this, you know, you know that for such a small amount of effort on your part, you're getting an amazing return in terms of, wow, this is awesome. Like I'm going to make this again. And um, it's almost, I feel like there's a, there's a, um, like a magic point at which the more time you spend on something isn't actually going to make it taste any better yeah. <laughs> in a way. The, the one I made the other day, which was the Chamula roast um, tuna with raisins. And I use Padron peppers, actually, because they came in my Riverford um, oh, veg lovely. box. Oh, lovely. Delicious. Yeah. Um, you put the, the tuna in right at the end. I think I definitely would balance it with, with fish dishes. Yeah, if it's tuna or something really delicate like sea bass, flash it on the top right at the end. But then otherwise, if you think of peppers or tomatoes, you can definitely cook those with yeah, fish in yeah. the same amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy food, but it does come with stories. And, you know, you you talk about the Creole crab tarts that came from North Carolina and the coconut rice and crispy chili tofu from Indonesia, uh, Russian meatballs inspired by a stay in St. Petersburg. Again, it's really interesting to tell those stories now when we're not traveling anymore. It's like an echo from a long time ago when we were allowed on a plane. Um, <laughs> those stories make the food exciting. Yes, I, I always think that stories should come with context. And even if it's a sort of, do you know what? I literally just opened my cupboards and had a rummage and I was lucky enough to find these things. People can find that inspiring because they think, right, well, next time I'll yeah. just look in my cupboard. And if it says capers, but I've got olives, why not? let's try it. So I, I love the idea that you can spark people's imagination from having just a really short introduction. It doesn't have to be pages and pages about, oh yes, well I was in Lake Como and then this happened. You know, just really specific. Although I love that too. I love that too. But I think if um, if you're going down more the manual route than a book that you take to bed to read, like Nigella's How to Eat, then just a snapshot. Yeah, absolutely. You come from um, a, an interesting background as well. You come from Bengali South Indian heritage, but you grew up in Cambridgeshire. So yes. you have fantastic sort of cuisines to pull upon and lots of stories, I imagine. Um, well, I think the thing is when you grow up somewhere, so I was I was born here as was my sister, you just sort of take it for granted that there's a variety of ways to eat so my mum's a very keen cook and she would alternate between making lovely Indian food but then quiches Delia uh, Lindsay McCartney sort of a real mix so the idea of having this sort of well we're going to have Chinese one night and Indian another night and then something western and then a quiche and then maybe something a bit French like that's that's kind of the way I grew up and then it would surprise me that people would maybe think oh it's it's quite hard to make a Thai dish and I think, well, oh, I think it's maybe outside my comfort zone, but it's definitely worth trying. And I think we were so lucky growing up at the time when Jamie Oliver and other food writers were just sort of opening people's eyes to know it's really easy to cook Italian. You know, chuck out your dried mixed herbs from the cupboard, use fresh basil, use fresh mint. And 
I think you're always a product of all the influences around you. So I guess I had great influences from home. And then, you know, there was that special cookery aisle that Delia had in Sainsbury's, sort of with her exotic ingredients, which are now every day. And then, of course, Ottolenghi a bit later. So we're all so lucky with the food writers who sort of paved the way for these slightly different ingredients to become mainstream. And then, of course, you can draw on the food that you grew up with and add to it in a way. Let's go into your food moments, Rukmini. Um, The smoky sausage casserole with chorizo, peppers and beans. Why did you choose that one? Well, despite just having told you that my mum's a fantastic cook, which she is, I'm also very much a product of the 80s, which would involve your old tin spaghetti hoops or um, little cans of sausages and beans uh, for dinner, potato waffles always potato waffles. And I have a real fondness for that kind of nostalgic, tinned, frozen food in a kind of comfort way. And I haven't had a tin of beans with little sausages in probably since I was a child on the basis that nowadays I'm quite careful about where's my meat from? Was it from a happy pig? And I just thought, you know, I'm going to try and make it. And there's something about this dish. So I, I rename it rather than tinned sauce and beans it's um smoky sausages with chorizo and peppers and and cannellini beans and what I thought was hilarious that was despite spending a little bit of time you know you you do brown off the sausages first and then you add the rest of your ingredients and it tastes exactly like tin beans at the end Um, and even with the chorizo which you would think it adds a wonderful richness to the sauce but it still tastes like tin beans um so I I was was very proud of that (laughs) Funnily enough, I had that last night. I meant to do, I'm also, um, I eat very little uh, meat, but it always has to be high welfare. And we have an amazing butcher's around the corner. And so we got some sausages and we were going to barbecue them. And then I got distracted. And so I put them in the oven with some potatoes that came from the Riverford thing. And I need <laughs> to get rid of those because my Riverford is about to arrive tomorrow. And, and so everything just went in the oven while I did what I was doing. And actually, as... It turned into one of your kind of roasting tin dishes because everything sort of melded together. The baked potatoes were roasted in the in their skins, but in the the, the fat of the sausages, mm, they lovely. were amazing. Everything sort of beautifully caramelised. Can't believe it. That was completely <laughs> sort of fluke. <laughs> so I know what you mean. Your second food moment: lime and coconut dal. Ah, now this is an interesting one because I have to admit, I actually am not the world's biggest fan of dal, which is a bit weird if you've got, if you've got Indian heritage, people just assume that you really like lentils. But if I go to a friend's house, I've made some lentil soup and it's like, "Mm, mm, oh dear. But this dal is nice enough that even I like it. And when other people have it, they're just, oh my God, this is good. So it's, um, just a really plain dal and in the original recipe you would use chana dal so it's a bit chana means chickpea so it's the dal that looks a bit like little split chickpeas so it's quite textured it's not just completely smooth and silky like when you make egyptian red lentils and you've got these little bits of fresh coconut that my mum will fry and you put those in um and loads of lime juice and a bit of turmeric and salt super simple maybe five or six ingredients and it's something the way the lime juice works with the coconut and lifts the flavor 
and I could eat this one by the bowlful. So it's really nice. We're doing this interview at lunchtime. I may have to make that for my lunch today. That sounds absolutely delicious. I mean, they all do. They're extraordinary. They bring together all sorts of different um, ingredients. And you know where they come from. We kind of all know where these come from now, but there's no authenticity issue really anymore. It's a melting pot, isn't it, of lots of ideas from around the world. And I wonder if that's also one of the keys to your success. You know, we used to watch those programs in the 80s about Marta Jaffrey and, and Ken Hom, of course, authentic, where food comes from, story, story, story. And I still love all that. But actually, now we've got such a, a, a rich understanding of where food comes from that we can start mixing it up and playing with it. And you do that, don't you? Um, I think I'd like to think that I don't do it in a way where I'm saying that authenticity isn't important because I think there is definitely a place for that. Like in a way with some of my recipes when I've taken them to my editor and we've we've looked through them and thought, how accessible is this? You know, a long list of ingredients. It's a Wednesday night. You want to cook something quick for your family. Do I want to spend, you know, raid my cupboard for 20 kinds of spices? And my way of approaching it is very much like if I'm tired and fed up and hungry, do I want to tackle this recipe? That's almost like a test for each one. So first I've got to be excited by the title, lime and coconut dal with coriander. Yep, sounds great. So I, I want to make it from how it sounds. And I test that with my friends and family. So I'll send them the list, just a, like a, a bit like a menu, like anyone want to try some of these for your, for your dinner over the next few weeks? I've got recipes up for grabs. And it's always the same ones that people pick, the ones that sort of sound and I'm like, I know which ones are going to be the hits from this book on the basis just from the title people want to make it and then the second step is does it look like I can make it from not being too difficult but to bring it back to the authenticity I think that's why with publishing you want such a wide range of cookbooks so my friend Mimi I she's written this beautiful Burmese book Mandalay which you've probably read and it is wonderful like I, I did the food styling on that book with her I ate every single dish because I was just like a little baby bird. I'm at work, but can I try this? And can I try this? So as it was out the pot, have it all for lunch. And I love that that kind of publishing sits alongside mine. So if you are interested and you have some time and you think, do you know what? No, I want to learn about another food culture. I want to do it properly. And this is how to do it. You would go to her book. And if you're like, well, do you know what? I want a quick Wednesday night supper and kind of maybe some flavors, a bit of lime juice, a bit of star anise, a bit of uh, Sichuan peppercorns, you know, you think, well, I can do this from Rukmini's book and I'll save the the longer pottering for the weekend. So I I would not say that my recipes, which are simplified, are a replacement. I'd like to think that they sort of go alongside. So if you're time poor, you can approximate some flavours in a really punchy way without my claiming that, oh, this is exactly how they do it in the Xi'an province. Yeah. And I think that what it does is it gets people more interested in food, yeah. in cooking, uh, introduces them to new flavours, which they suddenly realise with a little bit of Ras al you can make cod absolutely <laughs> incredible. Um, and so you play with other things. What else can make my cod feel absolutely fantastic? Um, your third food moment is the Bengali mustard fish, for example. Um, now that you use a mustard sauce called kasundi. Yes, but you can obviously use Dijon. 
Exactly. So there's an exact example. And it really doesn't make any difference, does it? I mean, no. I mean, on a, if you're going to use grainy Dijon in this recipe, it's absolutely fine. Like the Cachundi's got something a bit more special, but I appreciate that you definitely cannot find it. Even my mum and I have trouble tracking it down and have been known to bring it back in a suitcase. So I think Dijon is, you know, I would never say you can only make this recipe if you've got the original mustard sauce. Yeah. And and you use, you know, big spinach, spring greens, kale, cavallonero, chard, very British greens as well. What would you use in the original Bengal? Oh, so, um, so spinach is a big thing there, but they have similar sort of big leafy greens. And yeah. almost in a way that now, you know, if you're getting your, your Riverford potatoes and you probably, if you're getting Riverford spinach, it's big spinach. It's not yeah. little baby spinach like you get at the supermarket. So yeah. I would say that actually cavallonero or... Um, Swiss chard are closer to big spinach or the kind of big bitter leaves that you might get in Bengal um, yeah. rather than you know rather than your tiny little baby spinach that turns into mush yeah so you've used the idea of the original recipe and then you've brought it home and given it to us to play with and and of course if people did want to use something else they can I mean they it's it's the wonderful thing about recipes is that they are for us and we can play with them and it's about giving us confidence to make amazing flavors that we can then build our own confidence to play with ourselves absolutely and then we become cooks yes it's that that's how it happens your final food moment is that Creole spiced crab tart. Mm. Now, tell us about the road trip through the USA for a start. Just take us on a little virtual trip <laughs> back in time across the pond. Um, back when road trips were a thing. Um, <laughs> so I used to do quite a lot of them a few years back and um, picking places that you maybe wouldn't have necessarily thought of for a US road trip. So um, a Midwestern trip through Nebraska and South Dakota and Wyoming. That's amazing. And this trip was a sort of southern trip. So we did Virginia, uh, Kentucky, and the food is just incredible. I mean, a lot of them. So if you stop off in Nash- Nashville for something to eat and you think, oh, it's it's going to be quite whatever your stereotypical idea of what southern food is like. Oh, it's maybe a bit like KFC or something. It's nothing like that. It's so hipster. It, I would say it's like being in Shoreditch, except you're in the middle of southern America in some tiny little town and the quality of restaurants, the quality of food, the innovation that goes into the dishes. So they've got the very traditional things like, so there's shrimp and grits, which is kind of a bit like a polenta with um, prawns. It's, it's a delicious dish and they're doing sort of really beautiful versions of that. And um, oh, these amazing like fried green tomatoes which sounds really odd, but they've got these really, really firm green tomatoes, which are, so they stand up to cooking almost like a little steak and they breadcrumb it and fry it. And it's just amazing. And it, but not all about fried food. So these Creole crab tarts, I think they were an appetizer somewhere and they were tiny little crab puffs with some sort of spicy, creamy crab meat inside. And I was just talking about them for the rest of the road trip. And I came home and I think I went to Sainsbury's, bought some of the, one of those little tiny pots of crab from the chiller. I was like, how do I make this? How do I make this? And came up with this version with Philadelphia and hot sauce and a bit of onion, a bit of garlic and just, you know, using puff pastry. 
And eventually I came up with a version I was happy with and I've been making it ever since. It's amazing. 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 And that is when you're sending those recipes out to your friends and family, is that one of the ones that they go, bing, that's uh, the one for me? Yes, that was one of my editor's favourite ones. And actually it was because, you know, what cookbooks are like, they're so collaborative. I was chatting to her saying, I really want to include this recipe in the American chapter. But as we've talked about, is it accessible? You know, crab is a luxury ingredient my books are very sort of mainstream and I wouldn't want to assume that you're shopping at Waitrose or or Sainsbury's like you should be able to get everything from Tesco or Asda and she said well I often make this wonderful crab dish with tin crab for my kids so you tip a uh, tin crab meat loads of lemon juice a little bit of chili because their kids like chili through spaghetti delicious I was like oh haven't thought of that so yeah this this dish uses tin crab just to make it that little step more affordable and accessible. Excellent. Well, we need to change the way we eat, clearly, because of climate change. Um, we need to be eating more plant-based recipes. We need to be look, getting our, our meat from good, mm. high-welfare farmers. We need to be more aware. We need to be more conscious consumers. And I think that exciting people about food in this way and just dropping those messages in as you do about good provenance. I think that those are the really important books that get out to the vast, vast numbers of people. Do you feel like you're a bit of a Jamie Oliver? Oh, um, I wouldn't like to think that I was anywhere near Jamie Oliver. Um, well, you are in terms of best-selling books. Um, well, I think the way that he revolutionised the way that everyone thinks about food there's massive influence on me, my mum, my sister, all, all of us, all my friends at university. So um, I, I don't know if these books are having a similar effect, but we it sort of opened our eyes to cooking in ways which we hadn't. And I think another really fresh thing about his books was the photography. Um, and they just seemed so vibrant and so accessible. And like you could put your hand right in the picture and take the food out. Yeah. Um, and actually when I came to thinking about the roasting tin books, um, I was a bit cheeky and I wrote to Jane Oliver's photographer because I'd worked with him a little bit and I said, I'm doing a little book. Do you think you could possibly do the photos? Because I remember you mentioning that sometimes you give back by doing little projects. And he's like, I'd be delighted to. It, and that was David that Loftus. That was David Loftus. Yeah. And I was just delighted that he came on board for what was at the time a tiny little project book. Um, and he did the same for Gifford's Circus book. And Oz Hallas tells that same story. Really? Um, yeah. Because, and I said, well, why wouldn't he want to go and take photographs of hipster circus performers in a <laughs> fabulous, you know, exciting story? And he did. And the, the pictures absolutely sum up the whole spirit of, of Gifford's Circus. Um, it's a beautiful book. Thank you so much, Rick Minnie. Um, I'm, I've, I do think that there's something really important about getting these incredibly delicious, exciting uh, recipes with stories just out there, because I think that the answer to uh, saving the planet is actually more people cooking and enjoying cooking and using really interesting recipes and understanding where food comes from. And I think you've done a great job in celebrating that enormous story of food. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. Do subscribe, rate and review. And you can go to my website, juliesmith.com to sign up to my newsletter and find out about all the other things I'm doing. 
Next week, I'll be back with eco-chef James Strawbridge and his artisan kitchen. I'll see you then.